This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome back to New Books in Psychoanalysis, a podcast on the New Books Network. My name is Jordan Osserman, and I am your loyal host for today, and I'm very excited to be back after a brief hiatus from the program. Um, And I'm also very excited that uh, today we'll be interviewing Dr. Leon Brenner on his recent book, The Autistic Subject on the Threshold of Language, uh, which is hot off the press. Uh, It came out in September 2020 with Palgrave in the Palgrave Lacan series. Um, and some of you may have seen this book uh, doing the rounds. Um, I believe Leon uh, spoke to friend of the podcast, Vanessa, Vanessa Sinclair, on her Rendering Unconscious podcast. Um, and there have been uh, interesting discussions about the book on Facebook and YouTube and other places. Um, so I'll just introduce our guest first uh, before we dive in. So Dr. Leon Brenner is a research fellow at the University of Ghent and a lecturer at the International Psychoanalytic University, Berlin. He is a psychoanalyst in formation and a member of the Association for Psychoanalysis and Psychotherapy in Ireland, also known as API, um, L-O-B. I'll let him um, tell us what that one stands for. I believe it's German. Um, and a founder of Lacanian Affinities Berlin, LALAB uh, is its acronym, and Unconscious Berlin. Uh, Dr. Brenner's interests are Lacanian psychoanalysis and French philosophy. So welcome to the program, Leon. Thank you. I'm very excited. Yeah, we're really pleased to have you. Um, So yeah, I would, uh, just to start us off, it'd be really interesting to hear about your own um, journey into psychoanalysis before we get into um, autism in particular, um, because as we just saw in, um, you know, the kind of affiliations you have, there's a sort of international medley of kind of organizations that you seem involved in and um, different different kind of areas where you're um, doing psychoanalytic work. So if you could tell us a bit about that, um, that would be great. Okay, yeah, for sure. Um, it's, um, I think it's uh, quite a regular story. Um, I started uh, from, I started from psychoanalysis, started in, by reading Freud, being very excited about uh, psychoanalysis and Freud as a, as a, let's say, a teenager and was dreaming about going to the university and studying psychology, uh, which I did. Uh, but at the same time, I also did a degree in philosophy. And somehow um, I fell in love with the uh, uh, conceptual realm and uh, started working in philosophy and uh, doing another degree in, in philosophy. But while working in that field, I was very much uh, attracted to uh, French theory and uh, French political theory, uh, etc. And at some point, I stumbled upon uh, Lacan uh, by accident, uh, Jacques Lacan. This is the psychoanalyst that, uh, let's say, I adhere to his teaching and in some uh, way or another today. And um, that, again, made me uh, uh, exchange lovers, and I came back into uh, working in psychoanalysis in a more clinically oriented uh, perspective. And today I try to preserve both, in a way. So today my work is um, also, I work as a a teacher and as a scholar, and uh, I write and do research at the university, but I also have a a private praxis and uh, develop myself as as a psychoanalyst there. Hmm. And it seems um, from what I've gathered online that there's there seems to be something of an emerging Lacanian scene in Berlin that you seem very much a part of. Could you say a little bit about what what the Lacanian world is like in Berlin right now? <laughs> that's that's uh, wow. That's terrific to hear. Um, you know, Berlin was the center of psychoanalysis in the uh, in the 20th century, beginning of the 20th century. I can't say this is the case today, uh, but uh, we have big aspirations here. Uh, it has become a, a super international city. Uh, I work with people with so, from so many places. Um, 
in terms of the work that, uh, let's say, the, the groups that I am part of uh, do here, uh, there's a lot of excitement. Um, also in terms of, uh, of just taking Lacan's theory and finding some uh, interesting contemporary implementations, and this is usually in the form of uh, arts or, uh, uh, let's say, uh, publications which are not uh, academic. But also, I think there is a certain um, rise in interest uh, on the clinical side as well. If you ask me, uh, Lacan is fascinating. Uh, there is such a uh, heuristic depth to his teaching. And from my students uh, that I meet in the university and outside, it seems that this kind of style and this perspective really kindles a, a unique kind of, of desire. Uh, for knowledge, uh, that is to learn and to create, but also for unconscious knowledge, uh, which we see uh, by encountering people in the clinic. And mm. let's say the, the projects that I do today is, is uh, I, I participate in, in two projects, or sort of one of the founders in our group that's called La Lab, that's doing a lot of activities uh, here, like uh, reading groups, academic groups, we have supervision groups, uh, we have our own journal that we publish a few times a year. And also a more artistic project that I take part of that's called Unconscious Berlin, where we try to uh, find a, a new medium for expressing um, intricate and important psychoanalytic notions. Hmm. So, so tell us about how you got interested in the subject of autism in particular. Right. Um, well, the, the book was born out of um, what I can call an an acute disparity uh, I identified between two discourses that supposedly address the same object. Um, one can say the uh, scientific discourse and the identity discourse on autism. From the perspective of science, uh, autism is uh, determined as a developmental disorder. Uh, this is how it's defined uh, in the DSM-5 as the um, sort of setback in the development of social and communication skills that manifests in uh, restricted or repetitive patterns of behavior. Now, from this perspective, autism is a knowledge-independent entity in the world that has been affecting humans before we discovered it. So what we see on this side is a slow elaboration of autism using scientific tools and we see scientists ask questions like, um, what kind of thing is autism? Is it a psychological, a physiological, a genetic conditions? Uh, what behaviors distinguish it from other forms of pathology, etc.? And by asking all these questions, we see scientists attempting to determine autism as an object of science, which is a mental or physical disorder to be objectively studied and eventually contained. Now, on the other side, and this is the side of actually autistic people. So I'm talking about subjective testimonies, and there's so many, and they're so wonderful. I'm, I'm really urging the listeners to, to read some of these uh, books. And we can find them in books, in popular media. Uh, I'm a member of several internet forums, which are inspiring. And in all of these formats, we see uh, autistic people describe autism as part of who they are. So this is uh, more like a, a sense of selfhood, uh, a unique part of their identity, and not as a handicap that should be eradicated. And this is, this is kind of linked to the rise of uh, the neurodivergence movement, right? Exactly, exactly. So the neurodiversity movement yeah, is... Uh, let's say, uh, uh, how this discourse penetrated the domain of ethics and politics. And we see a movement that, uh, that demands the rights and recognitions of autism as a neurological variant of humanity. And we have a lot of outspoken autistic people, like uh, Temple Grandin, for instance, that go against the notion of a cure for autism. And she says uh, something on the line of, if I could snap my fingers and not be autistic, I would not. Uh, because then I wouldn't be me. And she says, autism is part of who I am. Right? And this is a certain distinction I very much put an emphasis on in the book, 
that autism being something that is pervasive, all-encompassing, should be referred as something that someone is and not something that someone has. Right? And maybe a good example could be, um, let's say, type, type 1 diabetes, which is an illness that affects some people, and it, it's, it's serious. There, there's a lot, uh, it, it, a lot of costs that, that one has to pay uh, by having this illness from a young age. You need to take injections and measure your calories and sugars, etc., uh, so, so this obviously has a dramatic effect on the psychology of a person. But when you talk to people that have diabetes, you would see that many of them say, well, I have diabetes. It does affect me. It does shape some parts of who I am. But it is not all-encompassing. There is part of me that it has nothing to do with diabetes. Uh, and Autistic people say something different. They say there is no part of me that I can define outside of this autism. And this is, again, why diabetes can be defined as something that someone has, while autism, at least in the scope of my book, is defined as some, something that someone is. Right? So this is the, uh, what I call the identity discourse that autistic people adopt, and they describe autism as part of one's identity, and in psychoanalytic terms, we call this the ego. Now, in my book, I propose that both the realist scientific discourse and the normative identity discourse, in a way, uh, fall short of designating the singularity of their object. So they, they do so by confusing uh, what I call um, what is subjective about autism, and it's confused with the object on si of science, on the one hand, and with the ego, which is an object by itself, uh, on the other hand. And this dual misrecognition is what revealed to me the theoretical vacuum from which uh, this book crawled up. Uh, sort of like uh, a place uh, of truth coming out of the well, armed with her whip to chastise mankind. Right? And mm. In this place that was discovered, this is where my main argument unravels. And yeah, this is what is stretched in the book between the unconscious and the place of language and what uh, Lacan called uh, the subject, uh, quite mm. paradoxically, because the subject is the object of psychoanalysis. Right? <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I think for some listeners um, who might have heard something about what psychoanalysis has had to say about autism. Um, the, the sort of popular picture that's, you know, depicted in the media is um, not very favorable towards psychoanalysis. So some people may have heard about um, in France, uh, a documentary that depicted uh, Lacanians and other psychoanalysts in a very bad light around how they treated autism and suggested that they had very retrograde views. Um, but you engage um, and and show the readers how there's actually a lot to gain, and um, particularly from the French-speaking world, about the work that psychoanalysts have done in the field of autism. So could you could you correct the picture for us a bit, or tell us a little bit about what some of the um, misconceptions might be? Yes, exactly. And this is very important to stress. And I have to say that the history of autism, in a way, uh, here sort of slightly referring to the history of madness when we talk about Foucault, but the, the history of autism has been a history of uh, misrecognitions and confusions from the beginning. You know, this term was invented by uh, Bloiler in 1910, uh, the term autism. And he used it to actually describe a severe form of schizophrenia, which in, entailed a total detachment from reality. And then his followers, uh, these famous psychoanalysts that did engage with the subject of autism, uh, referred to it as childhood psychosis. Right? So here we have uh, uh, exactly these psychoanalysts that I think uh, can be referred to as the ones that uh, uh, have have been uh, engaging with the question of the mother, right? Uh, now you have Margaret Mahler, Bruno Bettelheim, Donald Meltzer, Franz Tustin is a very prominent one. 
And it's true that the, the most pressing polemics against the implementation of psychoanalysis in cases of autism emphasizes exactly the fact that psychoanalysts have always blamed the mother. And we have this term called cold mother, which is adopted from this field. I think refrigerator mother, is that, isn't that the other one? That's another one. That's true. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, these terms uh, usually are related to uh, Bruno Bettelheim's book, um, The Empty Fortress. Now, again, I'm, I'm, I think it's important to address this issue and to acknowledge that uh, it's true that in the history of psychoanalysis, some have gone on that route and definitely flirted with this idea. But I venture to argue that the theoretical richness of psychoanalytic texts having to do with autism greatly surpasses this notion, especially in the Lacanian field. And just to correct sort of a, a, sort of a notion that should be corrected, because, you know, psychoanalysts, they talk about the biography of the patient and they discuss the relationship with the parents. So obviously... There is something there that is, let's say, a material for an analysis. But even Bettelheim, that, you know, they, they specifically address Bettelheim as the one that, in, that is very audacious in, in referring to the cold mother. But even he said, uh, quite explicitly in the book, he says that it's not the maternal attitude that produces autism, but the child's spontaneous reaction to it. And I think this is important in, in psychoanalysis, that, and especially in the Lacanian perspective, that the question is the question of the subjective reaction or the subject, spontaneous subjective reaction to certain historical circumstances. But anyway, in the book that I wrote, I present a psychoanalytic framework that does not adhere to this motif in any way, but is rooted in a linguistic approach uh, to psychoanalysis. Uh, as uh, mm. as uh, is common to uh, work of Lacanian analysts. Mm. So, well, let's go into the the theory in in a little bit. I just was wondering if you could help sort of flesh out what would it actually mean then for, let's say, the parents of an autistic child to take their child to a psychoanalyst who might be. Um, mobilizing some of the ideas that are discussed in your book versus to have a more traditional approach to treating autism. And perhaps these things aren't, you know, they, they might happen side by side, but what, what might the differences look like? Yeah. Um, well, maybe we can start uh, more generally. Because, yeah. um, you know, uh, autism is commonly viewed by practitioners today as a mental illness. Yeah, a developmental disorder. And when practitioners talk about mental illness, they usually refer to something, you know, that is a result of you know, something that went wrong. And autism is described as a developmental disorder. So something went wrong in the process of development. But I think, to me, this is a bit strange, and this might uh, characterize uh, the Lacanian perspective, because I think that when thinking about things from a psychoanalytic perspective, subjectivity itself is something that went wrong. As, as you know, Freud argued that at a very critical time in a child's life, something uh, of the sexual drive becomes fixated. And this is something that is fixated, let's say, generally in the child's way of being or enjoying the world that stops its development and from that moment remains frozen in a way. Now, this fixation is not a leap towards health. On the contrary, it gives rise to repetitions in our lives that shape the way we enjoy as adults, but also shapes our suffering, a specific kind of suffering. And in this sense, I mean, every subjectivity is the outcome of a developmental disorder. And what I think Freud generally argued uh, when he said that is that there's no proper way to be in the world, uh, only wrong ways that are fixated at an early age. In this sense, if we follow uh, 
uh, Woody Allen's imperative, uh, whatever works, uh, you know, like any satisfying relationship, whatever works is whatever, whatever keeps on going, even if it's, 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 it went wrong. Yeah, it works. And when we think about addressing um, subjects in the, in the clinic then, and autistic subjects as well, we're thinking about creating the conditions that would enable uh, this thing that went wrong to work. Now, this is not singular to autism. This happens in cases of neurosis, of perversion, and psychosis in the clinic. But again, I, I don't find it useful to describe autism as a developmental disorder. Because, well, autistic people enjoy and autistic people suffer. And what makes them, what makes the encounter with autistic people in the clinic to be unique is not so much that this has, let's say, set itself in course in, at an early stage in their development, but what I think is the specific way language had been congealed or the access to language has been fixated at an early age, and maybe we can say we, something remained frozen then. And this is what defines autism as a singular mode of subjectivity. And what we see in the clinic of autism, then, according to the uh, psychoanalytic perspective, is work with language. And the idea that autistic people are not outside of language, and that the way uh, to facilitate their existence and enable them to have more freedom and joy in their life is by facilitating their introduction into a unique mode of access to language which is open to them and, in fact, is, is in a way, limitless. You know? mm. Yeah, I was thinking, um, in the, actually, in the acknowledgments, I think, in your book, you mentioned this podcast on Radiolab called Juicervos, um, which uh, I had a chance to listen to, which is really fascinating, um, great uh, kind of hour worth of, of listening to get a, a quick introduction. Um, and they discuss the case of a child who um, uh, the parents uh, eventually realize that um, their child has autism, that he's not behaving in the way that um, his peers do, and, and something seems to be wrong. And, um, and he keeps repeating this phrase um, that they think is, is the phrase juicervos, um, and it doesn't quite make sense to them, and they think it has something to do with juice. Um, and then they realize that um, he has this sort of obsession with, with Disney films, and he's been um, watching certain scenes in these Disney films on repeat. And at a certain moment, um, he's, he's playing The Little Mermaid, and he rewinds um, this scene with the villain Ursula, where uh, the, she's telling The Little Mermaid um, how the thing that she'll have to sacrifice if she wants to become a human is, is just her voice. Um, and suddenly the mother realized, oh, this phrase he keeps repeating, juicervos, it's actually just her, just your voice um, that comes from the film. And then this sort of like unravels a way in which the parents are able to um, use sort of Disney films to sort of, um, I, I, it, it seemed to me, you know, kind of an illustration of the point you just made, sort of work with some way in which the child has entered into language to actually begin to have conversations and kind of move things forward. Yes, uh, yes, that's absolutely true. Uh, and that episode is terrific. I, I would actually love to, uh, to work on a Juice of Oz 2 with, with radio. Yeah. It's a good idea. That episode got me, um, got me into the research. It really um, got me going because um, at the time, and I think... Even today, there, there aren't a lot of convincing theories that would explain this process that Owen, the child in the, in the story, went through from, from being completely, uh, almost completely mute, so not using language at all, to a certain moment where his father uh, hides his face, takes a doll, speaks in the voice of Gilbert, Gilbert Gottfried to him, and asks him, Owen, how are you? And I, and I think Owen at the time was, I think, at least eight years old or six years old at the time and haven't been speaking. And his father asks, Owen, how are you in this voice? And he answers, 
I'm lonely. Mm. All of a sudden, the, the silence is broken. And this is, uh, this was, uh, this blew my mind. Yeah. Yeah. And in, in engaging with this question, um, yeah, this got me working on, on, on the book, definitely. Maybe mm. we can talk a little bit about, about the question of the voice in, in Lacanian psychoanalysis. Then. Yeah, mm. absolutely. I, I, was, I was going to turn to that because um, that, that was the funny thing about the podcast as well is what they didn't dwell on um, or explore was um, how it was that particular phrase that he latched onto, the idea of the voice being sacrificed. Mm. Um, so, yeah, say, say a bit about that um, because I know uh, also in the introduction to your book that's something... Um, Malival, uh, who is, I guess, a sort of collaborator of yours, comments on as well? Yes, yes. Jean-Claude Malival, he's a terrific scholar from France and a colleague, and he wrote the introduction to the book. And uh, Malival writes that uh, the, the question of autism is a question of an entry into language. How do autistic children enter into language? For, for me, it's a question of an entry into language and also the specific mode of access to language, which is enabled by this entry. And maybe we'll try and, and get there soon. Uh, but what, what we see in, in autistic uh, babies is that they don't enter into language in a way that we commonly see in, let's say, neurotic babies. Um, that is, through babbling, through this musical aspect of language, through a sort of play of sounds, Autistic babies uh, commonly don't uh, speak or make sounds at an early age, definitely not using sounds in order to address their caretakers. There is something about the, um, let's say, a level of engagement or involvement in language which is lacking in, in this entry, this mode of entry into language. Now, what I argue in the book, and I'll, I'll try and be as, as sort of general and, and not really delve into too many, uh, let's say, conceptual elaborations now. Uh, what we see in autism is a certain refusal at a very early age to assume on themselves what uh, I call an in enunciative role. In other words, there's a certain refusal to invest something of the very immediate vivacity of, let's say, the body in the field of language, uh, or what we call in, in Lacanian psychoanalysis, the field of signifiers or the big other. So this thing, and maybe uh, this will sound a little bit like um, a lingo right now it's is, is what is called a refusal to invest the voice as an object as a drive object in the field of the other so what do i mean exactly by this um, the concept of the drive is extremely interesting in freud i think it's also interesting for us english speakers because there's a huge translation error uh, in the um, common translation of freud where Freud uses two terms when he talks about the psyche. Uh, he uses instinct and trieb, two German words, and both of them are translated in English to instinct. Whereas instinct is obviously an instinct, but trieb is a drive. And the drive is a very interesting psychoanalytic notion that we can say is a product of the encounter between the body and language. So the drive is a sort of a psychic representation that entails the mutual effect of language and the body, this effect that they have on each other. And if I, if I state this more simply, I can say that the drive emerges when something of the, what I call the vivacity of the body, is cut out and invested in the big other or in language, what is also the intersubjective domain of culture. Now, in order to understand this, maybe we can use like a simple example uh, you know, of a baby that's being born, and uh, unfortunately, babies don't take care of themselves. They uh, rely on their caretaker. Um, and at a certain moment, uh, some 
need of the baby is not answered immediately. If we assume hypothetically that in the womb all needs are met, although this is obviously not true, but hypothetically, when the baby is out in the world, sometimes it will be hungry, but there will be no food in the baby's mouth. And what the baby has to do at that point is address a caretaker to feed him or to take care of him. Now, in order to do so, the baby has to use a language that this caretaker will understand. So, in a sense, we say that the baby has to use the language of the other in order for his needs to be met. And when the baby does so, when the baby cries, the cry is the first moment where something of what I call this vivacity of the body, of the need, of the instinctual need, of something that is total and, and, and complete all over the body, is circumscribed under a specific signifier, this cry. And this is a reduction. This is a, a process uh, where something is fixated. Yeah. And, and what we see here is that something of the body itself is cut out and then translated into language. Now, what, uh, what Lacan says about this process is that this is the process where the drive is created. In terms of, let's say, feeding, uh, Freud called this the oral drive. Freud also talked about the anal drive. And Lacan adds to the list the scopic drive, the one where we see things, the gaze, and the invocatory drive, which the object of the invocatory drive is uh, the voice. Now, the drive object, because of what I've just uh, said, is situated between the body and language and plays a crucial role in the mediation between the subject and language. And in a way, it defines the way we are invested in the world and the way we desire. Now, each drive has a crucial function, and what Lacan argues that the invocative drive, the one has to do, that has to do with the voice, uh, are exactly are, have a very important uh, role in congealing or setting in place uh, the mode of access to language. And what I argue in the book is that what we see in autism is something that has to do with the question of the voice. Mm. Uh, what, what I, in a way, I argue is that there's a particular aspect in the relationship between the body and the other, or the body and language, that is problematic in, in autism. Now, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, carry on. Okay. So um, I just thought about maybe explaining a little bit about what I mean by the voice. Um, because it's hard to explain uh, what the voice object is in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I can, tell, I can tell you briefly that we cannot reduce the voice to the intonation of speech or the vocality or the meaning that we convey in speaking or even the uh, materiality of the speaking body, I mean, the, the cavity and movements of the mouth. Uh, what I can say, and I'll try and, and put this simply, is that the voice as a drive object is what carries the subject's presence in speech. It is what makes the subject the subject of enunciation, and it endows speech with an otherness that is irreducible to the message. Now, in the book, I provide a, an example that I take from the field of semiotics, and specifically from the work of uh, Roman Jakobson. And he talked about the phatic function of language. And the phatic function is, is a sort of function of communication where we establish a line of communication regardless of the content communicated in this line. So this function materializes when the subject invests itself, or we can say even invests its being in language, and in a more Lacanian term, where something of the body's excitation, and Lacan calls this jouissance, is invested in discourse and makes discourse a place which represents the subject's being. Now, 
now I, I'll, I'll try and say what we see in autism. So this initiatory sort of yielding of jouissance to the other in language is a thing that autistic subjects find to be traumatic. So in other words, making language a place which, let's say, carries the subject's enunciative being is the thing that is problematic for the autistic subject. And it is experienced as extremely distressing, as a mutilation, and even a cataclysm. And this is why autistic subjects, what I, I call this, retain the voice. They effectively separate themselves from the field of language, from the field of the signifier that threatens them with this, let's say, brutal castration. And what we see in autism, and this is relevant for uh, the podcast Jusevos, we see that the retention of the voice sometimes materializes in states of autistic mutism. And while autistic subjects do gain access to language, they do everything in their capacity to avoid the enunciative presence of the voice, or what Jacobson calls the phatic function. Now, some autistic people use, in order to do so, they use a very monotonic voice. They use a voice that's devoid of effect. Some use very high-pitched voices. And some use dolls, like we saw in the case of Owen, and portraying themselves as the as someone who is not the enunciator, but someone who speaks through the doll in proxy. And some repeat sentences and words in the exact intonation in order that they first heard them. So all of these are important strategies and attempts to engage in speech uh, in order to convey information, but also to erase the enunciative presence of the subject in speech. I think that it's through this perspective that whatever happened with Owen can be elaborated, um, let's say, in a more interesting and maybe useful way. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think absolutely that's that's what the theoretical elaboration that you offer helps to do is kind of make sense of, um, you know, the sort of more commonplace, I guess, psychiatric a uh, kind of way of describing autism as a set of behaviors without providing a sort of underlying, you know, sort of theoretical scaffolding so you can make sense of why would all of these different seemingly unrelated symptoms or behaviors um, have something in common that gives it the name autism. Exactly. Um, but I mean, something I was wondering, and perhaps this is like an impossible question to answer, mm. is um, so you know, we know from the Bettelheim quote you provided that um, that, that this isn't uh, about the mother, but, um, you know, potentially a, a spontaneous reaction to the environment. Um, but but why one choice of entry into language versus another? You know, is there is there any way of, of postulating why would a child end up having this relationship to the invocatory drive rather than a neurotic one? Yes, um, this is another good question. Uh, and I, I have to say that this is where I think um, a certain modesty that is characteristic sometimes of psychoanalysis um, needs to be put into place. Um, psychoanalysis, at least I think, is not a discourse that can um, answer all the questions in the world. Let's say it's not the discourse of all discourses. It has its... Um, advantages, but also its limitations. And at least the perspective that I adopt and the perspective that I adopt in the book does not engage so much with the question of causation in these terms. So in the book, I am not so much in, interested or engaging with why do people become autistic in the first place and how can we change that, for instance. I am more concerned with the fact that autism is there autism is what somebody is and how can we help this person um, have a better life with his autism and be autistic in a way that uh, is useful and fulfilling 
So I can't say that I can tell you, but there are a lot of researchers that do engage with that question, mostly in the field of, uh, let's say, uh, brain physiology. And uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of research done on that topic uh, today. But this is, again, not a question that I engage with in the book. Yeah, although one of the things that I, was a real light bulb moment for me when reading the book was how you pointed out that, um, you know, lots has been written about the um, so-called cognitive deficits as well as cognitive advantages that autistic subjects have, such as, you know, an, um, sometimes a very impressive memory. Um, but that while uh, the sort of cognitive field might see this as a difference in, you know, innate brain structure, that if we take the approach of thinking about this as how you enter into language, um, it could make sense that your brain would develop in a certain way because your relationship to language is such that you don't, um, that you need to memorize words rather than necessarily kind of, um, I don't know, enter the symbolic in a way in which, uh, you know, uh, the in a more neurotic way so mm. that you, you kind of the, the way in which you enter language has effects on how your brain might actually develop yes and i think that makes a lot of sense um and this is a major aspect of the book which comes later this is sort of i call this the payoff uh, of the book uh, is another interesting topic that sort of i engage with is the exact way in which language is implemented by autistic people in the construction of their reality. So how does it exactly work and how does that affect the way, um, you know, uh, how psychologists say, the way they behave and, and the way they perceive other people and themselves. So the focus that I, I suggest um, to take when addressing autism is on language. And I'm not inventing the wheel here because abnormalities in language and speech development are one of the defining features of autism. This is quite acceptable. Um, but, but what I sort of stress in the book is that we cannot view autistic uh, subjects as exiles from language. Uh, there is something that happens, and we talked a little bit about the level of the voice. In the book, I talk a lot, a lot about this uh, mechanism that's called foreclosure, a sort of a psychic mechanism that sets the mind in place, let's say, sets the way language becomes the building blocks of a subjective reality. And I argue that this mechanism functions in a specific way in autism, and I try to understand how it actually enables autistic people to use language and uh, to speak. And what I argue in the book, and I offer a, a, an interesting theory that I'm developing with, again, my colleague Jean-Claude Maleval from France, is that while autistic subjects are not disposed to signifiers or to the signifier, they do develop a language on the basis of the sign. Right? And this is something that many Lacanians do say about autism, is like a common, uh, something that's commonly accepted is that in autism, there is no big other. This is a, one of the accepted uh, phrases you see in Lacanian psychoanalysis of autism. In the book, I try and, and explain what this means. So this doesn't mean that there are no others in the world or that, that, that autistic people do not want to have relationships. And this does not mean that autistic people don't have access to language. So what does it mean? It means that they depend on signs and not signifiers. Uh, let's do it quick uh, excursion to, to the field of semiotics in order to understand uh, a little bit what this means. According to this field uh, uh, of, let's say, li linguistic research, uh, in language there are only differences. Uh, there are no positive terms. So let's say there are no concepts or ideas that exist before a linguistic system does. And if we want to describe a linguistic system, we describe it as a set of differences between sounds that are combined together and cut in different places. And this is a word, you know, like uh, the, 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 the word cat, like a combined of sounds that are interposed. Now, Lacan was a fan of semiotics. And what he argued is that meaning does not arise from a relationship between a word and an object what is called a signifier and a signified, 
but it arises from the differentiation between one signifier and another signifier. So he was very interested in, on the level of the signifier. And this means that concepts, at least in our neurotic minds, uh, are purely differential. So they're not defined by their positive content. They're defined negatively by their relationship with other terms in the system. And this is how the field of in the field of semiotics and how Lacan describes a language that is composed of signifiers. Now, I argue that in the book that neurotic, perverse, and psychotic subjects use language in this way. They rely on signifiers. Now, a sign is a different form of linguistic unit, and this is adopted from the theory of Charles Peirce. A sign is composed of a sensory representative. So this would be a written word, an image, or a sight, or let's say smell, like the smell of smoke. And this sensory representative refers to an object in the world or a concept. And when it does refer to this object, it makes sense to a speaker of a language. So let's say a portrait that depicts Napoleon refers to him, and I see it and I can understand that. Now, a language that is based on signs is different than a language that is based on signifiers. And what I argue is that while autistic people do have a mode of access to language, they do achieve a mode of access to language, this mode of access is based on the logic of the sign. Now, how do we describe a language based of signs? we can describe it as a matrix of rigid relationships between representatives and reference. So you can think of it like a code language. And this code language lacks the dynamic subjective factor that the signifier inserts into language. So a sign in this language is encoded into it and sort of petrifies a relationship to a referent that was acquired under a specific context, uh, which sets the relationship between the representative and the object in place. So if we build a language based on these rigid relationships, we see that different contexts and circumstances can challenge the notion that we establish on its basis. So for instance, if I see a cat and I, I am basing myself on a language that is based on signs, and I call it a cat, and I see a specific Persian cat on a rainy day, when I see another cat, maybe even a Persian cat on a sunny day, I will not be able to call it a cat. It would be difficult to code these, both these uh, objects under the same representative. And this setback is what makes autistic language different than language that is used by, let's say, neurotic subjects. And mm. it, has, it has sort of uh, circum uh, uh, consequences. And, you know, very, very generally we can say that this kind of language is usually implemented as a factual language, sort of devoid of effect. It lacks this subjective factor that is more dynamic and dependent on context. It's a language that's unaffected by humor. Um, it's a language that has difficulty in coding general concepts. Uh, you know, like it would be easy to code the, 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 the word lassie because it refers to a specific dog. But the term dog is very difficult to encode in this language. We have Temple Grandin saying in her book, uh, Thinking in Pictures, he says, under the term dog, I collect all of the images of the different dogs that I've seen in my life and I put them visually under this specific word. She says, this is the only way I can even fathom what a general concept means. And not to mention, you know, terms that are, that have no concrete referent in the world, like uh, abstractions. Like imagine coding a, a word like peace. What is the referent of peace? Yeah. Mm. You what? could see why uh, a way of relating to language like that would, would lead to needing an extraordinary memory. Exactly. Exactly. And we see many autistic people, which are very talented people, very intelligent people, implement this mem memory in order to achieve a very rich 
language, a very rich linguistic capacity and, and, and a lot of knowledge about the world, but this knowledge is based on this kind of linguistic operations. Right? This language, while it could be extremely rich, extremely useful, and lead someone to a level of, of independence, complete independence in the world, is more precarious in comparison to the fluidity and, let's say, associative flexibility that the signifier enables. And what mm -hmm. we do in the clinic of autism is being attentive to this mode of access to language, attempting to work with it, um, rather than taking, let's say, a pedagogical approach and trying to teach autistic children to behave in a specific way. Hmm. Um, for the kind of final 10 minutes that we have, I was I wanted to turn to something that's, a, I guess, a, a personal research interest of mine. And um, uh, it, it might be a bit speculative for you. You may not necessarily um, be able to say much on the subject. But, um, you know, there's been some discussion around um, uh, there's there's this uh, Netflix show Love on the Spectrum, which um, shows uh, autistic people um, navigating the world of love and remote and romance and going on dates with one another. Um, and I'm I'm interested in this um, question of uh, what, if anything, we can say about gender and sexuality um, and uh, sexuation in the Lacanian parlance, um, and it, what relation what it might have. To, what we can say about it in relation to autism. Um, one other thing that kind of comes to mind is there's been a lot of discussion in the UK around um, young gender questioning or transgender people. And um, a number of uh, people who've been referred to uh, the health, the clinic in the UK that um, offers care to young people who are considering changing gender, um, that they've had a, a massive increase in uh, referrals from patients who are also diagnosed as autistic. Um, and some people have kind of raised alarm bells about this. Other people say, you know, there's nothing particularly noteworthy about it. But I'm curious if, if any of this, um, I don't know, uh, sort of, if you have any thoughts on, on whether um, how we understand sexuality and gender um, have any bearing on whether a subject is autistic or not. Yeah, this is a very interesting um, topic which I am beginning to work on today. I do not engage with the question of sexuality and gender in the book. Uh, but maybe I'll try and answer briefly from what I've so far gathered. Uh, I've seen this show as well on Netflix. Um, it's uh, definitely heartwarming, but I felt um, I wasn't very comfortable with it. Because what it seemed to me uh, was... Um, an attempt to force a, a sexual identity or even an understanding of what dating and sex is onto autistic people. So I saw neurotic, very neurotic people uh, trying to teach autistic people how they should date, how they should yeah. enjoy sex, how they should enjoy their partners. And to me, that was, uh, that was quite um, heartbreaking. Because it is, it's quite silly because there are these scenes where it's like both partners that are about to go on a date are being taught these rules of social etiquette. And it's like, well, if neither of them care about the rules, then why do they need to follow them? Exactly. Exactly. And this is, this is very akin to the, I think, uh, behavioral approach uh, where, again, and I'm, I have to stress this, I think behavioral therapists are good people. They have... They really want to help their patients, but there are points where the behavioral approach, which comes with the solutions that are ready made, is problematic. And in terms of sexuality and, and expression of, uh, of sexuality, I think this is a, a classic uh, example. Yeah. Like you said, why should they enjoy each other's company in this way? And you see how confusing it is and how much it doesn't work for them. So I would think a more interesting show would be um, exploring uh, exploring what dating is for autistic people, inventing it. It's a huge problem because while us neurotics have all these, uh, let's say, information in culture that we can base our own dating habits on and our own questions about our sexuality, um, autistic people don't have that uh, knowledge uh, and don't have that knowledge coded in their own language. 
So there's a, a hard labor of, of translation needed to be accomplished here. And also, I think, a little modesty and understanding that, there, that we have to treat some people, we have to just be hospitable to their otherness and see hmm. how they can manifest what sex is for them. And, and do you think, is there anything particular to autistic subjectivity around this question of how one defines one's gender identity um, in terms of some of these questions about perhaps a higher number of autistic people who um, identify as transgender? Yeah, um, let's say um, at least uh, Lacanian psychoanalysts, um, while taking uh, the question of sexuality very seriously, um, Ideas and different ideas and notions of um, let's what is called the sexual relationship are taken always taken with a grain of salt. Um, Lacan is famously known to say that there is no sexual relationship. In a way, there is no actual proper way to uh, explicate what is the relationship between two subjects engaging in sex, let's say. Um, all the, all the, the ideas about sexuality are failed attempts to say something about the sexual relationship which does not exist. So, you know, all of us, males or females, or even people that uh, define themselves as non-male, gender-neutral, etc., all of these are failed attempts to say something which cannot be spoken. Yeah. But for neurotic people, there is a certain way to um, put that question to rest and take on yourself a certain role in society which is provided to you um, from, from culture. Now, what we see in, let's say, cases of psychosis and uh, Freud and Lacan, they talk about the case of Schreber, a famous uh, case from Freud's uh, teaching, and Lacan says there's something interesting. He says that in the case of psychosis, the, this, the question of sexuality becomes a bit more diffused, and uh, Schreber has the opportunity to find his own solution there. Uh, Lacan talks about uh, something that he defines as a transsexualist uh, enjoyment that Schreber chooses to take on himself and sort of makes it its, his sort of elegant solution to the question of sexuality. Now, what we see in autism is a, a, a mode of access to language which does not have to do with the place of signifiers or what we also call the big other. It is in the big other, in the field of culture, that we find all these wrong answers to the question of sexuality. Now, what I think, or this is sort of my thoughts on it at this point, is that while in psychosis there's a certain diffusion and a, a, a larger, a, a stronger freedom to express a unique answer to this question, it is still a question that has to be um, answered from the place of the other. And we see that in Schreber because Schreber's solution eventually is to be the wife of God. This is what he chooses. But I think that in the case of autism, uh, there is even a more relaxed approach because autistic people, they don't depend on the big other. They depend on a completely different construction that is more personal, more idiosyncratic. And in this sense, there is a much larger um, freedom in choosing their situatedness in, in whatever the spectrum of sexuality is. And I think this is why we see more autistic people being confident and seeking, uh, seeking whatever solution they feel uh, fits them. Hmm. Um, although it's interesting, I mean, on that note, I guess, that, that those solutions aren't going to be, well, nevertheless, have, have some conversation with or have something to do with what's going on in culture, right? Because you, you wouldn't really, if, for example, if you, had, if you identified as trans, that, that also does draw on a kind of larger cultural repertoire of what that means. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that they, they will have relevance in what can be called a autistic culture or this specific way that language is used by autistics. 
and this is sort of a, a notion I do develop in the book that's called the synthetic other, sort of a supplementary other that is constructed by autism, by autistic people. I think the question of sexuality will have rele- relevance in this field and not necessarily be so relevant to, let's say, the, creator of, the creators of this uh, dating show that we saw on Netflix. Hmm. Um, so just before we go, we always ask, um, what is it you're working on next? Uh, well, um, I'm right now uh, leading a research group in uh, Ghent University of uh, several very talented scholars that uh, work on the psychoanalysis of autism. Uh, everyone has an interesting project uh, to work on. And right now I am working on the notion of the skin and thinking about ex- very early experiences of um, the s- body surface and the way that they can be translated in um, what can be said um, uh, psychoanalytic terms or even topological terms in order to understand uh, autism better. Well, this has been an extremely fascinating conversation. I'm sure it has been for our listeners as well. So Dr. Brenner, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely my pleasure.